chapter 5. We're going slowly through this the story of Jesus coming back in Jerusalem where he heals the man who has been lame for 38 years. And he does it on the Sabbath, which is, to me, is, is, is fascinating because, you know, I asked the question last week, why did he do this on the Sabbath? Why the Sabbath? Why didn't he wait until Sunday? which was not the Sabbath, all right? Why didn't he do it the day before? Why did he plan on doing this on the Sabbath? We covered that last week. Um, but I'm going to ask the question again. We're going to cover it again this week. Why the Sabbath? Part two, how's that? It tells us, in, in, and, and we'll get into that, but it tells us in John chapter 5, it says that Jesus found the man. I'm going to pick this up in verse 14. Jesus found the man that he healed in the temple, and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and informed the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, Obviously, they asked him the question, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? He answers, and he gives a peculiar answer in verse 17. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, John is interjecting here, right? They were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and, said, and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him great works or greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And the one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look in this passage. Help us to glean from it the importance not only of what you said but the revelation of yourself in this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. We thank you, Lord, that you are the name above all names, King of kings and Lord of lords the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
and that you hold us in the palm of your hand. So we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Why did Jesus do this on the Sabbath? We looked at it last week, and Jesus is underscoring this idea that the law could never save us. We looked at Romans briefly, very briefly, Romans, where it says, by the works of the law shall no flesh ever be justified. I threw in ever. It says, but the works will not be justified by the works of the law. Galatians essentially says the same things. And that we cannot trust in our works, including keeping the Sabbath, which you probably all violated yesterday, uh, including keeping the Sabbath. But maybe you didn't. Um, there's, there's some debate about that. So, but I'm, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to go down that road this morning, although I'm really tempted. But anyway. What Jesus did in healing this man on the Sabbath, and I, I've only got a portion of it for you, because I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven, why did you do that on the Sabbath? Why? It, like, as I said before, it was as if he kind of laid in a hammock from Sunday to Friday, and then by evening on Friday, he gets up and he does his work. And so many times he was doing these things on the Sabbath because, uh, among other things, he is established himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. I touched on that very briefly last week. Matthew chapter 12, verse, verse 8. Exodus, where Yahweh declares himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, using the same verbiage, declaring himself in Matthew 12, verse 8, as Lord of the Sabbath. What is he doing? He's establishing his deity. He's establishing himself as being equal with God. He's making a very strong point here that the Jews understood. Because in verse 18 it says, for this reason, when he says, my father is working until now and I am working, I myself am working. I'll get into that in just a second. It says, for that reason, because Jesus said that about God the Father, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only did he break the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, his very own unique father, which goes back to this idea of the only begotten son of God that we see in John chapter 3. It really, this, this word that is translated only begotten really refers to this idea of only unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. That's what it's really referring to. And again, we do not read John chapter 5 and avoid. We read it in context of what has already been written in John chapters 1 through 4 already referred to the only begotten son that Jesus referring to himself in the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But we read and comprehend the entire book of John through John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. 
Now, how in the world can the word, the logos, be with God and is God at the same time? I don't have an answer either. How's that? I was doing some reading on this. There's a guy named Marvin Vincent. He's a, he works with the original, worked with the original language. Really intelligent guy. I like a lot of his writings. And he referred to this idea. Now, I want to handle this carefully. Now, when I say that, that means listen carefully, okay? He referred to this idea of there are so many different things about God that we cannot understand with our human mind. That's not too hard to, I think, accept. There are so many things about God that we really cannot understand with our human mind. Matter of fact, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that the things of God are, are, uh, are undiscernible except for by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you in such a way that often we don't even recognize, or there are times... I've heard people tell me that the Holy Spirit told them things that really does not ring with Scripture. So to me, that had to have been another spirit. But it is the Holy Spirit that gives us intellectual understanding and also a spiritual intellect. A spiritual intellectual understanding. Something that goes beyond reason. It goes beyond reason. I find it fascinating because it, it's not so, uh, it was really this way with, in Calvary Chapel. Um, not this when we were one, but in others that I had been in, where somebody becomes born again. They get saved, and what do they want to do? They immediately want to learn everything about end times. I appreciate their zealousness, but how much of that will really speak into their spiritual life? I'll let you answer that question all by yourself. How's that? When, when they don't even understand the bas basics of Christian living. When they don't even understand the, the fullness of who God is. Which, by the way, do we ever understand the fullness of who God is? It's frustrating but at the same time, it's incredibly, what's the word I want to use? I'm lacking for a word. Rewarding and comforting. And it keeps me coming back. And again, it goes back to what an old friend of mine told me. When he said to me one day, Mike, if we understood everything there was about God, would he really be worthy of our worship? A lot to consider with that. We only have limited capacity spiritually to comprehend these things. Now, I ask for more. Do you ask for more? We should ask for more. That's why I'm, I'm, two things I'm convinced of. One, there will not be a theology test to get into the gates of heaven. Bless you. All right? There won't be a test. Because how do we get in? We get in because of the blood of the Lamb. You won't have a theology test. Or all, all your 
all the mixed up ideas of them at my last church. How's that? All right? They won't have to worry about that anymore. I'm almost, so, I'm almost convinced there's going to be a seminary when you get into heaven. And I can't wait. I can't wait. To really, you know, because so often it is, and this is one of those cases, guys, and, and we're not even going to hardly look at hardly any of this passage this, this morning. You don't have time. But the Lord has given us these incredible truths of which I believe we only are able to touch the hem of the garment. And yet it is enough to make us whole. You understand what I mean by the hem of the garment, right? The woman who had the issue of blood who said to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, which could have been, could have been is speculative, all right? I'll give you a little speculation. There's a warning. It could have been the very blue little tassels that were hanging from Jesus' prayer shawl that she reached out and touched. I don't know if that's the case or not. Your mileage will vary on that, of course. But she knew that when she touched the hem of his garment, she would be made whole. Do you understand how much faith that must have taken? This unclean woman. In Jewish society. This is as bad as breaking the Sabbath, by the way. This unclean woman, because of her faith, releasing her faith by touching in the hem of the garment, and she's made whole. This man, who it's, it's still to me, our, I don't... I don't see a whole lot of his faith. I see him as, as, as the playground narc, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go tell the, you know, I think he was afraid. I think he feared the Jews, and he didn't want to, he didn't want to <clears throat> bear the, the, uh, the, the reproach of him carrying his bed on the Sabbath, which, by the way, according to different Midrash writings it, within the city limits, it was probably legal. But by this time, Judaism was a religion that honored God in name only. They were teaching as the law of God, the precepts of man. And just because they claim to know God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just because they claim to know Jesus, by the way, there are different Jesuses out there, doesn't mean they're worshiping the true and living God. We interpret this passage through, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and that blows my mind. And I cannot explain it. I can try and probably lose everybody in the room, including myself. Or I can just take it on faith. God has declared it. God has breathed that into the writing of his apostle John, the one whom was the beloved. He was claiming equality with God. Let me explain how this came about. 
where he says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. We're going to do a grammar lesson, okay? You guys, some of you really like it, some of you can't stand when I do a Greek grammar lesson. Um, that's probably working. Uh, no, it's cool. It's all right. Don't turn around and look at her. <laughs> We're good? Okay. I've had worse. I, I've, I've done worse, all right? We're in Lake Tahoe. I'm leading the last song of a set. I've told you this story before. The room was about as narrow as this. On the other side of this wall was my, our brand new Tahoe. And I'm playing, and uh, it's a very intimate moment, last song of the worship set. I'm, I'm, it's a very intimate time, and I re lean over with my guitar, and I hit the alarm on my Tahoe. And it's just on the other side of the wall going, mur, mur. so don't feel bad, all right? I've done it. Where were we? Okay. Verse 17, where it says, my father, grammar lesson. The word my is a pronoun, personal pronoun. It is in the genitive case. You don't need to write that down unless you're really into it. The important thing about the genitive case is it denotes a very strong possession. A very strong possession. Now, when, when, I'm, I'm, when I'm saying, for example, this is my Bible. I said it pretty calmly. But if this was a two-year-old's Bible, let's say, and I took it from them when they didn't want it taken from them, what would they say very loudly, usually? Thank you, Phil. For the, that's mine, right? <clears throat> Appreciate that, Phil. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the intention behind the grammar here. Now, it wasn't that Jesus went two-year-old. Okay, that's, that's not the point. He is very strongly emphasizing a special and a unique relationship with the Father that he and he alone has. The Jews understood it. They understood it. These were Jews, but they also spoke Greek, among other languages, probably Aramaic as well. It says, my father is working until now. I myself am working. Notice I omitted the word and. Because the word and is usually the Greek word chi, K-A-I, which is a conjunction. Come on, some of you guys watch Sesame Street or whatever. What's a conjunction? It joins together two things. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> okay, this is getting good. Interactive. Um, for instance, Mary and I came to church together this morning. Two different persons. We came to church. We're still here, by the way. No, anyway. Um, could you mute me just a second, please? Thank you. 
I didn't want you to hear that any louder than you had to be. Okay. Um, in the Greek, it's not a conjunction. I don't know why they put the word and there. Maybe to make it flow. Because often in translations, when the translator inserts words, you know this, what, how do we normally see those words? They're in italics, right? This one's not in italics. But the Greek word that's translated into the English and I is not a conjunction. It is a personal pronoun. We'll think about that a second. He's making a very, very strong definitive statement of who he is and his relationship. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, my father. But he doesn't use a conjunction to separate or distinguish between himself and the Father. You follow what I'm, what I'm putting out here for you? My Father, my Father is working until now. I myself am working. Essentially, what he is saying here is that I am doing the same thing as my father. Now, I, I, I've, I've talked about this a few times with, 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 uh, with, with one of you where there's this, there's this idea that when Jesus was on earth, he did not do anything of himself. It was the father doing it all, which to me makes absolutely no sense. And that's why when I refer to God, I'm always thinking in my mind, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, working in conjunction, working together. You read scripture, and who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. All three of them were involved in the incredible act and demonstration of the completeness of the sacrifice of God in the flesh for our sins. All three of them involved. We sang it this morning. Twice for good measure, didn't we? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we sang ghosts, but anyway. Same thing. What's interesting about this discussion between the Jews, and they were probably the Jewish leaders, and Jesus, is, is the, a second question. Remember, I first, what was my first question in this message? Why the Sabbath? Related question. Can God break the Sabbath? He's the God of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. But can he break the Sabbath? Because on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Colossians talks about with Jesus that in him all things consist. 
all things are held together? Yes, God refrained from doing any more creative acts on the Sabbath because he had completed his work, right? So in that sense, he rested. But what if he had just completely rested and just kind of let it all go? Come Sunday morning, he might have had to start over again. The Jews understood this. Matter of fact, there were, without going into details, I read this account of four rabbis that are defending the idea of, yes, we rest on the Sabbath, but God does not completely rest on the Sabbath because he still holds everything together. And in doing so, he does not violate the Sabbath. Again, I'll take you back to Matthew chapter 12. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But also Jesus talking about do the priest in doing their work in the temple on the Sabbath, do they violate the Sabbath? And yes, they do. But are they blameless in doing so? Yes, they are. See, the thing is, the Jews didn't love God. They loved the rules. They love the rules. And in reality, if you love the rules, who do you really love? You love yourself, okay? Because if you break the rules, that was a dumb rule anyway, right? I don't love that rule anymore, right? Why don't we do that? The, the, the ways in which we just try to justify ourselves, but knowing and forgetting the fact that by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So there's an agreement going on here in this conversation. It, it, it's kind of a presuppositional agreement. You know what a presupposition is? Something that you believe beforehand that influences either what you now believe or what you read, right? It, we all have them. We all have them. I remember one of the first classes I took in, in biblical studies for my bachelor's degree, and it was one of the first things the professor said is, you all have presuppositions. You all do. And he just kind of scowled at us, right? And he was right. Jesus and the rabbis, the Jews here, have the same presuppositional agreement that, that God is constantly working in the world. It's known as the doctrine of providence. God is constantly working. And, and if, 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 if God did not work to hold things together, even on the Sabbath, the whole world would collapse. The reality is, though, and the rabbis understood this correctly, is that we're not God. Therefore, the Sabbath... And Jesus said this, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. What did I tell you guys last week? That you have a God-given, a biblical precedent for you to do absolutely nothing one day a week? One day, not to, anyway. How many of you did that? Don't raise your hand. 
You're going to look at the ceiling and not do eye contact. But I'm going to tell you again, you have a God-given command to basically rest one day. So do it. Humans need the day off. God does not. And what part of the thinking with the rabbis when someone violated the Sabbath was they were trying to act like God? That was part of their thinking. Ever been accused of being a superman or a superwoman? Right? That was part of their thinking. And so here comes Jesus, whom they do not know, whom they do not recognize. And they see him doing the works that only God can do. And then he follows it up by saying, you're absolutely right. Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You're absolutely right because my father, my you, my father, the unique relationship, that unique possession, my father is, is working until now. I myself am working. He's making himself equal with God. They understood that. So they got mad and decided we need to kill this guy. And they considered what he was doing blasphemy. And the response of my father as a blasphemous response. He wasn't claiming to be a child of God in a general sense, but in a very special way. And they understood with him being equal with God. In other words, they got John 1.1 1, 1 before it was written. They just didn't believe it. And so they had to do away with him because after all, he was a lawbreaker, or so they thought. And then he goes on and he says, truly, truly. Now, when you see those truly, truly phrases, or in the old King James, it says, verily, verily, or in the New King James, it says, most assuredly, which isn't real. I like the truly, truly better. It's a stop and pay attention moment in reading the scriptures. All right, they're already mad. They already understood his claim to be equal with God. <clears throat> he says, I can say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless... It is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. Now, does that sound like a separation? Because it is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Okay, just to tie it back up, and the Word was God, all right? With God and was God, both. 
Does that sound like subordination? That the Son is subordinate to the will of the Father. It does. The Son, I believe, is subordinate to the will of the Father, but subordination does not mean lesser than. See, that's how we think. The boss tells the employee what to do, right? And the employee, hopefully, is subordinate to the boss, right? You have a hierarchy. Boss, employee. Remember, spiritual intelligence, not human reasoning we're talking here. Just because God the Son submits to the will of the Father does not make him any less equal to the Father. They have different roles. They play different parts. Philippians chapter 2, real quick. And I need probably an hour and a half to really adequately teach Philippians chapter 2. And so I'm just going to touch on it this morning, and then we'll be done. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is writing. And he says to them in verse 2, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. All right. He's talking about the, the unity of the church, but the reality is he's using this incredible theological truth that I want to tap into this morning and let it speak into John 5. Let this mind be in you who was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man. Notice that? Being found as in appearance as a man. That's very different than the form of God. Very different. Being found as appearance as as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord, kurios, again, in the Greek, kurios. In the Septuagint, when they used the proper name of God, or when they were supposed to translate from the proper name of God, they did not use God's proper name, which is, in my opinion, Yahweh. I always call him Yahweh unless I have Jehovah Witness at the door, then I call him Jehovah, and, you know, we, we work from there. Because the Jews had such a respect for the name of God, they would not use his proper name, and so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used the Greek word kurios. My opinion here is that Paul is not only just using an expression of Jesus as is Lord in verse 11 of Philippians 2 as his lordship, but as a declaration of his deity. But that's only 
just the icing on the cake in this passage, of which I don't have time to fully un unpack. But it said he did not think equality with God is something to be held on to, something to be grasped, something uh, that he needed to hold on to. Because when it talks about him being in the form of God, I remember somebody trying to argue this passage with me. Well, it says form of God, not God. Of is a conjunction. Let's do grammar again, all right? Of is a conjunction. It's not in the original Greek either. He was in the form God. That would be the literal English translation from the Greek. In the form of God, the Greek word morphe, which when I think form, what do you think? Something has a form. That means it has what? A shape. Good. My, of course our mind would go there. That's how we use the word. It's talking about a material context. Something in the form of. That's not what this word means in the Greek. Morphe. It's talking about a philosophical framework. An understanding of something that goes beyond material shape or structure. It's talking about the inward characteristic of a, of, of, of a person. What a person does because of who they are. Follow that? He existed in the form God. Or, I'm going to go almost amplified since somebody wants to bring the Amplified Bible into this a little bit. He existed previously, prior to his incarnation, prior to him taking on flesh, he existed and acted in such a way that demonstrated his deity. That's what this is trying to say to us. We think shape, but it's talking about characteristics. It's talking about a, a philosophical framework, not a physical framework. It's talking about, about him being sent by God on mission for God, doing the works for God, being obedient to God, bringing glory to God because, in fact, he is God. This word refers to the outward expression which gives a person, or excuse me, an outward expression which a person gives of their innermost nature. 
That's why you can't have an operation and change your gender. Because your innermost person is still the gender that you're born with. Sorry. All right. That's just where I'm at with that. Your mileage may vary. Hopefully it doesn't. But that's between you and God. It is an expression that it does not take on any influence from an outside source, but it's something that proceeds directly from within that person. Follow that? This is, I mean, this is really hard. See why I told you I needed an hour and a half just to teach on this verse? So what... Paul is telling us in Philippians 2 is that Christ Jesus existed as God. Now, don't think, don't think modalism here. Don't think that God was the Father, now the Son, now the Spirit. No, three in one. We sang about it this morning, all right? Did it very intentional, all right? but he exists as God, and yet his existence took on a different characteristic where he took on the form of a servant. Same word, morphe. Notice later it says he's being found in appearance. Different Greek word, by the way. Being found in appearance as a man. Paul here is, again, I, uh, I really, I want to go ahead and close. I think I've at least made the point and maybe given you a more of an appetite for this as far as what Paul is saying in, in Philippians chapter 2. But it, it is a, one of the strongest declarations that Paul wrote referring to the deity of Christ and the equality of Christ with God the Father. He's equal to, but he's also taking on the form, the outward expression of who he is inwardly, the form of a servant. Who is he a servant to? All of us, including the Father, by the way. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, I'm paraphrasing the daylights out of this, but... Learn to be the servant of all. Because when they asked who was the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus really was referring to himself because he is, in fact, the greatest in the kingdom. And that's the epitome or the utmost of humility when you can tell the truth about yourself, even if it's, it's placing yourself above anybody else. Because my father is working until now. It's the Sabbath. My father is working on the Sabbath. I myself am working on the Sabbath. That's what he's saying. And then real quick, this really struck me. 
Jesus begins to reveal himself in, in some very, very deep. This has been a heavy message, but he, he begins to reveal himself in, in, in such a way that at least here in the Gospel of John, he has now started the trajectory toward the cross. Now, yes, it was for the reason that he came. Yes, it was prior to the foundation of the world, that that was the trajectory that he was going toward. But we see here now is that all of a sudden there is a conflict and those who are in charge will not be happy until they have put him to death. Which is entirely the reason why he came to begin with. Because he is a God, though, who desires to reveal himself to each one of us. And he desires that we know as we are known. Paul uses that phrase. And he explains it. And we don't get it. And he explains it. And we get tired of not getting it. And he explains it. And right about the place where we are about to give up, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit starts to speak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He is a God who wants you to know him. A correct understanding of who he is matters. It matters. We can't come up with any old theology. Even though, again, we may not have it all right. But we, we need to be solid. We need to be right. We need to understand who Jesus is. Because the reality is, he wants you to know more about him than we even desire to know him. He really does. He wants us to understand who he is. Because <laughs> that's the kind of God he is. Amen.